first reading is from John chapter 18, uh, verses 15 to 27. Peter's first denial. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a cock began to crow. Our second reading is from John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. Jesus reinstates Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please keep that second reading open. The first reading, of course, is very important background to, to the reading we want to look at today, chapter 21. Chapter 21 is after the resurrection of Christ. But of course, that first reading was before Jesus died crucial background. We'll come back to it in a moment. But for now, let's begin with a prayer. Loving Father, how we need you. We need your words, perhaps to bring conviction, 
certainly to bring comfort. So by your Holy Spirit, help me to speak these truths in this passage clearly and faithfully and help us all, we pray, to receive what you want to say to us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, just imagine how Peter felt when the cock crowed. Just a few days before, he'd been in the upper room with Jesus, and Jesus had said that he's going to have to leave his disciples. And Peter's confused and wants to go with him. And Jesus says, no, where I'm going, you're not going to be able to come. He was talking about the cross, which, of course, only Jesus could die in the place of others. That was the journey he had to travel alone, but Peter didn't get it. He said, I'll do anything with you. I'll go with you. I'll lay down my life for you, he said. And he really meant it. But then Jesus said, Peter, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. And at the time, that must have been unthinkable. He loved Jesus. He was devoted to him, determined to go everywhere with him. I'll lay down my life for you. But of course, he said those words without realizing the horror that was about to unfold or how he'd react to it. In the evening calm of the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is praying, some soldiers appear, there's a commotion, they've arrested him, they've bound him, they've taken to the high priest, and Jesus is out of control, it seems. And Paul, Peter, no doubt, is panicking. But from a distance, no wonder it's from a distance, by the way, because the danger is obvious. He goes with Jesus. He sneaks into the courtyard, hoping he'll somehow sneak into the background, wonders what's going on, and someone says, oh, you were one of his disciples, weren't you? I'm not, came the defensive response. Instinctive, I guess. No doubt wanted to feel or even be invisible. He slunk back. He felt perhaps he'd got away with it. And then a servant girl said, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? I'm not. And then the third time. Oh, yes, you are. I recognize you. You're one of his dis... I'm not. And the cock crowed. And I guess that's when it sunk in. Until then, it was just instinctive. And of course, once he'd done it once, instinctive to do it again. He was in self-preservation mode. But then the cock crowed, just as Jesus said it would. Jesus, his friend, he loved him. His Lord, he longed to follow him. And he betrayed him terribly, three times. And can we not identify with Peter? Certainly those of us who are Christians surely can. Perhaps you've been in church and you've been singing, I surrender all 
I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. Love so amazing, so divine, demands, shall have. My life, my soul, my all. We meant it. We really meant it. We love him. And then we've let him down very badly. Think of a young girl whose father later said to a friend of mine how traumatized she was after something that happened at school. She was devastated by it. It was an RE lesson, and all of them had to have a Bible. They all had their school Bibles with them, untouched except for the RE lessons. It was only those sections which they'd looked at in RE classes that had ever been opened. But there was one Bible strikingly different. It was hers. She'd bought her Bible. She was a committed Christian. And there was a sticker on it, Jesus loves you. And underneath, she'd written, I love Jesus. And he'd been there on the desk, but she hadn't been in the room when some friends noticed it. And as she came in, they laughed at her and said, that's your Bible, is it? And she said, no, it's not mine. And how devastated she'd been later and how far she'd let him down. Maybe it's a sin, something we know is wrong and we've determined we're never going to do it again. Sometimes we've consciously done it. We know Jesus doesn't want to do it, but we've done it anyway. And again, and again. At other times, we don't really think about Jesus. It's instinctive, just as Peter's behavior, I guess, was instinctive. It's only afterwards we realize that that was, in effect, a slap in the face of the one we love. Well, just imagine how Peter must have felt as he saw Jesus dying on the cross the one he'd loved, the one he'd betrayed. And then Jesus had risen. And how excited he must have been, and yet mixed feelings surely. And we know that already, by chapter 21, Jesus has been with Peter. And yes, there's excitement, but somehow that conversation hasn't happened yet. And I imagine Peter kind of slinking in the background, feeling ashamed, because Jesus knew he betrayed him. And then, beginning of chapter 21, they, they're in Galilee, the disciples, maybe waiting for further instructions. They've gone back to the old business of fishing. They'd caught nothing until Jesus appeared. And with his help, there was a great catch. They've had breakfast of the fish. And then Jesus says to Simon Peter, whether he took him on one side and the disciples are not listening in, or whether this was in front of everyone, we're not told. But he says to him, Simon, son of John. And I guess that's when the sinking feeling comes. This is it. This is the conversation. And yet what an amazing conversation it is. And I hope it will encourage you as it's encouraged me. I've needed it. Three lessons we're going to learn. Here's number one. Failure isn't terminal. And maybe that's a lesson that some here tonight desperately need to hear. All of us need it from time to time, but maybe you especially need to hear it now. Failure is not terminal. Simon, son of John, says Jesus, 
Just as that sickening feeling, this is the conversation he's dreaded. But the fact that Jesus approaches him at all is surely an encouragement. He's not just banished him away. He's not given him the cold shoulder. He's called him by name, Simon, son of John, but not Peter. Peter's a nickname. The nickname that Jesus gave Peter when he was the first to confess Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus said, you are Peter, rock. That's what it means. On this rock, I will build my church. Well, he's not been very rock-like, has he, in the way he's behaved. Rocky, not really an appropriate name. Sandy might have been better. The courage and conviction that he previously had just seemed to disappear like sinking sand. So not Peter, Simon, son of John. I knew I was in trouble as a kid when my mother began, Vaughan Edward, or even worse, Vaughan Edward Roberts. Well, she was going to tell me off. Here is Jesus, Simon, son of John. It's a formal way of speaking. Jesus doesn't just ignore Peter's sin. Maybe we don't realize it when we first read it through, but he's making him face up to it. There's no explicit mention here of what Peter actually did. But surely Jesus is very deliberately reminding him of it. Peter had denied Jesus three times. And now three times comes the same question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Surely that repeated question is not a coincidence. And the first time the question comes, verse 15, do you love me more than these? And we might think, what does he mean by these? And the commentators have raised questions. Did he mean the fishing boats? Do you love me more than your fishing business? No suggestion, that's what's in mind. Do you love me more than you love these other disciples? That's another suggestion, but there's no implication here that somehow the other disciples are the rival to Jesus in his heart. Surely, do you love me more than these love me? And the significance of that is surely because of what Peter had said earlier when he was challenged. I'll go anywhere for you. They hadn't said that. In fact, previously, Peter had said, even if all fall away, I will not. Implicitly, he's saying, I love you more than anyone else. And so this seems to be digging away at a very uncomfortable memory. Oh yes, Peter, it wasn't long ago, was it? That you declared your love for me. You said you'd never fall away. You love me more than anyone else. Implicitly, that's what you're saying, because even if everyone else falls away, you won't. And yet they all did effectively fall away. They disappeared into the night when Jesus was arrested. They failed to stand by him when he was praying at his worst hour before the cross. Oh, yes, they let him down, but surely you let them down more than anyone else. Jesus is no soft touch. And before there's restoration, and wonderfully there is glorious restoration here, Jesus doesn't let Peter just forget it. There's a reminder. He takes sin seriously. And that thing that's on our conscience, wonderfully there's restoration from it. Jesus wants us to face up to it and recognize, no, that was very, very wrong. 
But the purpose is not to make people Peter grovel. It's all about restoration. My friend Simon Ponsonby, who many of you know preaches down the road at uh, St. Aldo's, uh, was speaking at a conference, and he'd gone to the toilet, and he was just about to flush, and then somehow a ring fell off his finger, and he had a difficult decision to make. It was a ring that his wife had given him, and he loved his wife. So he rolled up his sleeve, and then he went. Well, it's a grim illustration. But when I heard Simon say it, 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 it sunk into me what he was trying to communicate from that. See, Jesus doesn't just flush us away, does he? He's prepared to get dirty. What's Christmas all about? Jesus coming into the mess of this world. And what's the cross about? We've turned away from God, and yet Jesus comes looking for us. He takes our uncleanness upon himself. He faces the penalty for our wrongdoing. He gets messy for us to bring us back. Some of you aren't Christians. And the message of Christmas and indeed the cross is that God loves you so much he sent his son into the world. And he doesn't say to you, you've got to clean yourself up before I'm ever interested in you. He's come down, as it were, into the dirt. And whatever you think is the worst thing you've ever done, Jesus knows all about it and he loves you and he wants you back. That's the Christian message. And for those of us who are Christian, I know you failed Jesus badly. I know you have. And I've failed Jesus badly. And Jesus knows that we've failed him badly. But he doesn't just say, I'll get lost, a lot of you. Just as with Peter, yes, face up to that wrongdoing. But then he wants to restore. And just as he said to Peter, son, son of John, so he says, Vaughan, Joanna, Elijah, Esme, whatever your name is. Failure is not terminal. He's speaking to you. And he's speaking to you in loving restoration. Second, love is fundamental. Love is fundamental. Three times that question comes, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The focus here is not on deeds. He doesn't say, Peter, look, you really messed up last time, didn't you? So will you promise that you'll never let me down like that again? Because we can never make that promise. Focus not on deeds, not even on beliefs. Peter, do you believe that I'm the Son of God? That I died on the cross for you? The focus is on his heart. Do you Love me. And love is fundamental. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, how we live is determined by what we love. One of the great early church theologians, Augustine, spoke much about this wonderful theme. 
He said a body, by its weight, tends to move towards its proper place. So if my weight is going in that direction, I'll go in that direction. My weight is going the other direction, I'll go in the other direction. Your weight carries you. Well, says Augustine, my weight is my love. Wherever I'm carried, my love is carrying me. And those of you who were on the Connect Weekend Away a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, wasn't it? The Roots and Thesis Weekend. That was the whole theme of the weekend, was thinking about our hearts. And we thought about the sin behind the sin. Why do I keep doing that thing that I know is wrong? I keep doing it because I want to do it at that given moment. And why do I want to do it? Because if we're Christians, we all acknowledge this, we're not happy sinners. So Christians, you are a sinner, I'm a sinner, but you're not a happy sinner. Having done what is wrong, you don't say, I'm really glad I did that and I want to do it again. And we're not a happy sinner, but we keep on sinning. Why do we keep on sinning? Because we want to at that particular moment. And why do we want to? Because our heart's been captured by greater love than our love for Jesus. So whatever that wrongdoing is, we all do wrong in all sorts of different ways, but if you're thinking one particular thing, keep on doing, lose your temper, keep on lying, why do I do that? Because at the moment I do those things, I'm loving something else more than Jesus. I'm loving what you think of me, and so I'll lie to tell you what you want to hear. I love you more than I love Jesus, or whatever it might be. Why did Peter deny Jesus? It wasn't just cowardice. It was misdirected love. All sins are misdirected love-driven. His heart was no doubt more focused on himself and his safety or on the good opinion of others than it was for Jesus. So here's the, the, the heart of the matter in the Christian life for all of us. Do you love me, says Jesus. The older commentators make much of the fact that in the original there are two different Greek words. So Jesus says, do you love me? Do you agapeo me? It's a word that's often used to speak of sacrificial love. And Peter replies, I phileo you. It's a kind of brotherly love kind of word. And then Jesus says again, do you agapeo me? And Peter again says, I phileo you. And some commenters say, Jesus is saying, do you love me in a deep, sacrificial way? And Peter can't bring himself to say it after the terrible way in which he's let Jesus down before. So he says, I'm fond of you. I love you, but not in, in, in that kind of way. I can't do it. And then the final question, Jesus says, do you phileo me? He's come down to Peter's level. This is the suggestion. And then Peter says, yes, you know I phileo you me. There might be something in that. But more recent commentators, and I think they're probably right, have suggested that that those distinctions and and what commentators have made of them are are rather overstated. The words are actually often used synonymously anyway. Jesus would have used Aramaic, not Greek, and they say it's quite hard to work out what different Aramaic words he would use in those kind of ways. They say it's very likely to be just stylistic, and interestingly, look at the commission, which we're going to think about very shortly, feed or take care of my lambs, my sheep. 
And we're missing the point, I think, if we spend a lot of time working out, well, is it lambs or is it sheep or is it both? Is it feeding? Is it taken care of? Is it both? I think the emphasis is in the repetition, not the distinction. And so it is here. Interestingly, the fact that Peter was hurt when the question came, comes the third time, you know that I love you, implies that that third time, even though Jesus uses a different word, he's understanding it to be the same question yet again. Here's the key, you see. Do you love me? Let's not lose that emphasis. Do you love Jesus? Do I love Jesus? That is the key to the Christian life. It's the key to Christian experience. It's the key to Christian fruitfulness. Do you love him? I've told you on a number of occasions of the, the lovely elderly friend who's now with the Lord about 10 years ago, Eleanor Vitol, who's a member of our church family. I loved Eleanor very much. She loved me a lot more than I loved her. She was an amazing friend. And she'd often ring me up. And one occasion, she rang me early in the morning. She said, good morning, Vaughan. I said, morning, Eleanor. How are you? And she said, I'm well. I love Jesus. It's a great way to start the day, isn't it? I love Jesus. And then she paused and said, do you love Jesus? And I said, yes, I do love Jesus. But not as much as I should. And she said, I love Jesus. She'd let Jesus down very badly. She'd been raised in a Christian home, devoted Christian parents, but she, as it were, ran away from the Christian home. She went a long way away to another country. She married a diplomat, and she kept Christ at arm's length. Life was great. Her husband was a, an ambassador, she was entertained by the Kennedys in the White House. She was entertained by the emperor and empress of Japan. And while her husband was ambassador from a different country in Japan, he came home one day and he said, I, I don't love you. I've met a Japanese girl and I want you out by the end of next week. Well, of course, that was traumatizing for her. And she turned to the Bible, she turned to the Psalms, she found comfort and she came right back to the Lord. She ended up in Oxford just because she wanted the kids to get education. She heard Oxford was good for that. And even though things had been very, very, very low in her life, the joy was obvious. She loved Jesus. She realized she'd let him down, and in her desperation, she'd come back to him, and he never let her go. She loved him. So the question comes, Vaughan, do you love Jesus? you, whatever your name is, do you love him? And Peter replied and answered to the third question, you know all things, you know that I love you. See, the question wasn't for Jesus' sake, he knows the answer, it's for Peter's sake, for our sake. And if we're Christian, we can say, you know that I love you. See, that's why we feel bad about our sin. And we do, don't we? And I know it's possible to harden one's heart, and maybe you've hardened your heart for a long time and you've kept on doing it, and the only way you've been able to keep on doing it is by somehow shutting down thoughts about Jesus. But I don't believe that if you know Jesus, that in your heart of hearts you can just say, yes, I keep on doing it, and I don't care. Why do we care? Because we love him. And not as much as we should, 
Jesus wrote to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2 in one of his letters, you've forsaken your first love. And maybe you've forsaken a love that you had in the past. You don't feel love like you did in the past. But if you care about your wrongdoing, it's because you love him. And I love these words of William Cooper, the poet. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet I love thee and adore. Oh, for grace to love thee more. Love is fundamental. And then third, finally, discipleship is practical. Discipleship, being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus certainly begins in the heart. Love is fundamental. But it doesn't end there. It's expressed in action. So alongside this threefold question, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me, comes a threefold commission, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd, John 10, who laid down his life for his sheep. And the good shepherd wants the sheep whom he died for looked after. And there's no better way to express our love for Jesus than to love his sheep. And Jesus says to Peter, here's your job. And there's wonderful grace in this recommissioning. Despite Peter's great failure, Jesus wants to use him in his service. And maybe, we might just know this story so well, we don't get the shock of it, but I think it is actually shocking. That Jesus has, Peter's rather denied Jesus very badly three times, and it's kind of yesterday, it's very recent. And here is Jesus coming alongside and saying, right, now, here's your job. Job back. Be a pastor for the flock of Christ. That is a bit shocking, isn't it? That he could be restored to leadership after such a shocking failure. And this has been an issue down the ages in church life. Some of you will know your church history. And in the early 4th century, there was a terrible time of persecution, In North Africa, the Roman governor said that Christians could escape penalty if they handed over the scriptures as a token of their rejection of the faith. And a number did that, and that was fine. Some of them did it outwardly, but in their hearts they carried on worshipping Jesus, but they denied him publicly by handing over the scriptures. Others refused and suffered terribly. And then when that terrible time of persecution passed, the Christians in that area chose as a bishop someone who had handed over the scriptures and in that way denied Jesus publicly. And some of those who'd been faithful were horrified by this and they would not acknowledge that bishop and they appointed a different bishop. They were known as the Donatists because one of the bishops they appointed was called Donatus. See, this is an issue, isn't it? And it's still a live issue today. Christian leaders let Jesus down very badly. And sometimes in in public ways. And how do we respond to that? Should that disqualify them forever? It's a tricky one. One question one's got to ask is, is there proper repentance? And very sadly, I've seen instances where it doesn't seem that there's been proper repentance. There's been some kind of public acknowledgement of something, but it hasn't been 
it seems, if one feels heartfelt, there's been self-justification or counter-accusation, of course you can't restore in those circumstances. And great wisdom is needed. What's the nature of the offence? And it may be that there are some sins that are of such a nature that even if there's a restoration to fellowship, there won't be restoration to leadership. But let's not lose this instinct that after a probationary period, as long as there's appropriate penitence and there are no repeated lapses, well, Jesus wants to restore. Now, there's great wisdom needed in terms of church leadership, and that's not to be done lightly. But is this not good news for all of us? So here is the period straight after the, the cross and the resurrection, and Jesus' mission is about to go into the ends of the earth. And we could imagine if Jesus thought, well, I'm not going to rely on those disciples because every one of them let me down, and I need the news of what I've done in dying and rising to go to the ends of the earth. I need to bring a church into existence. I need that church to be pastored and cared for. So I'm going to start again because that lot's been useless. But John 21 is all about the restoration of failures. The beginning of John 21, we didn't look at that section last week. But all the disciples, or a number of the disciples, they're fishing. And here are failures. They let Jesus down. They're fishing, and they don't get a single fish. And then Jesus comes alongside, and there's a great, great catch. And here is one of the things that Jesus commissions his church to do, to fish, to fish for men and women. And he uses failures to do that work. And that means he uses people like you and me. We've let him down, but he still says, I want to use you to fish for men and women. Are you praying for your friends? And you think, well, what use is me? Well, actually, if you sense how far you've fallen short, you're just the kind of person Jesus can use because you know the beauty and wonder, the forgiveness of Christ. And you'll be able to share it with joy to others. Christmas is a great time to be doing that. Other friends you're praying for, seeking to invite talk about Jesus. And then this next story, the greatest failure of all, specifically given this commission to be a pastor. And of course the apostles have a particular role in this, but all of us are called to be pastors. All of us are called to encourage the sheep. That's other Christians. And he uses failures. And you might think, well, what use am I? I'm so weak. Well, you'll be able to understand the weakness of others. What use am I? I've fallen so low. Well, you'll be in a great position to warn others not to make the same mistake. Or I'm so vulnerable. Well, you'll be in a great position to urge others to depend entirely on Jesus because the reality is we are all very vulnerable without him. So the cock crew. Maybe for some, as it were, the cock has crown, crowed Tonight, it's been a reminder to you how far you've fallen short. And we need to receive the great encouragement of this section. Failure is not terminal. Love is fundamental. And discipleship is practical. Let's pray. Just a moment of silence. Let's make our own prayer to Jesus.
Those words of William Cooper. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet I love thee and adore. Oh, for grace to love thee more. Amen.